Brooks, honey. You were just having a crazy nightmare. You're back with your family now where there's nothing to be afraid of. Except that fog that turns people inside out. Huh? A five, six, seven, eight. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans, brought to you by ThatShelf.com. Each week we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film. Or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that Simpson joke came from. Regardless, each week we pick one that one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me always is the Zach to my Larry, my co-host, Nate Storing. How you doing today? I'm good, and completely lacking a pun or something to offer today. Well, how about this, this movie? Do, do you hope you get it? God, I hope I get it. Yeah, I really hope I get it. I re- That's how I feel, I guess. There yeah. we go. Okay, yeah, perfect. Yeah, perfect. Okay, that works, yeah. Uh, and if it wasn't obvious from that reference, this week we watched Richard Attenborough's 1985 adaptation of the Broadway classic, A Chorus Line. You might remember it from such Simpson episodes as Treehouse of Horror 5. And, um... That's it. And honestly, we're kind of cheating because like it's not even really a parody. Yeah. I mean, it is, but like it's it's, a, it's, it's the song it's at the end of the episode. It's more a parody of the musical probably than the movie, I'd say, uh, at least. It's a parody of the song. And I think that's basically <laughs> it. But, you know, whatever. And the dance it's, number. And, and the dance the, you're number. right. You're right. They do have top hats or like hats and canes. Uh, hats. But yeah, I, and it's our season finale in a sense. So I to celebrate, I made myself a martini. Yeah, so, I have an old fashioned. Oh, very fancy. So we're. Cheers. Uh, yeah, cheers, uh, Clink. Well, yeah. So before we dig into the film, let's talk about the Treehouse of Horror episode. So this is season six, episode six. Uh, original air date October 30th 1994 so this is one of those rare times they actually got to be like really close to Halloween which is always right. fun when the Halloween episode either aired on Halloween or like right next to Halloween yeah they even actually have made a joke about that more recently I think where they did like a Thanksgiving of terror or horror <laughs> yeah. or something you know yeah. like that kind of thing uh directed by Jim Reardon and written by multiple writers obviously so segment one is Bob Kershell segment two is Greg Daniels and Dan McGrath And segment three is the legendary David X. Cohen. And uh, I know when we discussed the Treehouse of Horror last season, I famously went on the record of saying, like, I'm not a big fan of the Treehouse of Horror episodes. But I think this one has to be probably my favorite. And I would argue maybe the best one. Yeah. First of all, you're a monster. Yeah, Uh, I know. Second of all, I think you're right. Um, this (laughs) This is one of my favorite ones revisiting these i think every time i come back to seasons five and six i remember how much i love david merkin and i love listening to him on the commentary as well oh yeah his commentaries are so good and very good about all of these um parodies too like Mm -hmm. uh, you know his he really sort of upped the game from season three and four which of course i also love but in terms of the parodies it's a lot more heavy on that and uh you know this trios of horror episode is is no exception yeah, well, it's. I mean, it's funny. One of the things, too, that I was reading in our research was that in response to longstanding complaints of excessive graphic violence in the show, showrunner David Merkin mandated that the episode contain as much disturbing and gory elements as possible. And right. it does. There is some crazy, nasty shit in this. Totally. I was rewatching this and listening to the commentary, and he was saying that he always felt like these episodes had to be both scary and funny, mm-hmm. right? And I think that, like, over the years, they kind of go back and forth. Sometimes they're more funny. 
Yeah. This one actually has some really creepy stuff in it that's like yeah. scary and like is again, you know, burned into my brain from when I was a kid. 100%. Um, including the parody, right? The main <laughs> yeah. this parody is so super disturbing because it's sort of like the very final moments of the episode. You've already gone through three segments and this is almost like a mini segment, right? Yeah. It tells a whole story in about a minute. <laughs> Where yeah, Bart wakes so up good. from a dream, right? And Marge is like, oh, it's okay. No, you're okay. You just had some kind of crazy dream. Everything's okay and you're totally safe here, except for that fog that turns people inside <laughs> out. And then the fog seeps in through the window and they turn inside out. In and a this is the song they sing. Some horrifying, horrifying animation. And also I love Homer's line of stupid cheap weather stripping. Right, right. Classic yeah, dad line. Yeah, totally. No, it's and, true. And I think I think that's why I like this one so much is that as they go on, they're more interested in just like being parodies or being like Halloween. Like this rides that line of being funny and also truly scary and yeah. sort of taking advantage of the fact that this is a non-canonical episode and they can kind of do whatever they want. And I think this is one of those few ones that really, really strikes that balance perfectly between the humor and the terror. You know, it's what we talk about when we talk about why we love Scream so much. It's like you need the humor to sort of like lessen the tension so that you can then ratchet it up again. And I think this episode does a really, really good job of that. Even in terms of the three segments, you get the Shining parody, which has to be one of the best Simpsons parodies Full stop. And then it does the second segment, which is just like, it's not a parody of anything specific. No, well, it is. Well, it is. okay, yeah, you're right. Yes, you're it's right. It's not a movie, though. It's right. a parody of a Ray Bradbury short story, which has been yes. adapted into movies, but it's not really a parody of those movies. It's a parody right. of the short story. But what I like about it is that it's more wacky and silly and funny. Yep. And again, it's, and it's so, the time travel one. Just, yeah. you know. It's the one where, you know, like Homer goes back in time and changes the future by stepping on. Yeah, it's the butterfly effect stuff. The butterfly effect sort of stuff. As long as I stand perfectly still and don't touch anything, I won't destroy the future. Stupid bug, you go squish now. Yeah, it's great. It's super wacky. But uh, it's sort of first one. It lessens that tension and sort of like eases you back in before going into a deeply disturbing segment about teachers eating children. More scary than funny, maybe yes. more, and maybe scarier than the Shining parody. I oh, think too. I, I would say a hundred percent. Especially because you know, like this is the thing that's great about the Halloween episodes is they really break the rules of the show. Where it's like, at the end of that segment, you know, Milhouse dies, <laughs> and then Bart and Lisa die, yeah. and then of course they wake up, and then they get turned inside out by fog. <laughs> but you know, like that playing with the conventions of the show is what makes it so fun and also so scary that like Bart's like, yeah, I'm sure something's going to come and save us at the last minute because it always does. And then yeah. they die, <laughs> you yeah. know, like it's great. And, it, and it, they die in such a horrifying, like the giant yeah, meat ground into me. It's like, oh my God, it's, I remember this as a kid, like not, yeah. not that I ever thought that my teachers were going to grind me up into meat and eat me, <laughs> but I do remember feeling like well, most was, of them. Well, so, yeah, granted some of them probably wanted to, um, it's great storytelling. It's like it comes back to that thing that we sort of have said on multiple occasions of what makes The Simpsons so special and I think was able to sort of withstand the test of time is that like at the end of the day, it's never just like a bunch of jokes strung together. They're always considerate of story and that's what I love about it. Totally. So then, yeah, coming back to this parody at the end, right? So it ends, they wake up, 
Marge comforts him, and then they get turned inside out by this fog. I, you know, in the commentary, they told they explain where this idea of the fog that turns people inside out comes from. Oh, okay. I, I didn't. I, realize had, it I was... have never heard of this before. Yeah. So apparently, it's from this album called "Drop Dead: An Exercise in Horror" by a guy named Ark Obler, who huh. I've never heard of. This is this seems like a very deep cut to me. But maybe yeah. again, if you grew up at that time and you were into that sort of genre world, this right. is something you might own. But yeah, they were talking about like listening to this album and how creepy the number on the album actually is, the whole sort of story. It's almost right. like a radio play. This is Arch Obler. In a horrific time in a horrible world, I have been asked to try and horrify you all in fun of course it's like these two people they go into like a dark place and there's a crazy woman and then there's this like black smoke that turns people inside out <laughs> and so that's where they got the idea for this segment but huh. then of course in classic simpsons fashion right they're mashing up two sort of homages slash yes. parodies that don't really belong together so you're mashing that up this arc obler like audio story with one from a chorus line You know, they get turned inside out and then they start <laughs> singing a song and they're dancing with pork pie hats and canes and there's these mirrors behind them. It's a very elaborate number. Every time they swish their arms, blood spatters on the wall. That's my favorite detail. Like, so it's good. so good. So good. And then the dog comes and wants to eat Bart. Bart's intestine. Yeah. The, the family dog is eyeing Bart's intestine is one of the lyrics and it's one yeah. of my favorites. I think this is phenomenal. It's such a good ending to a Halloween episode that's both funny and again pretty sinister too. Yeah. It's just it's very creepy. Um so like why this song? Why do you think they they chose to parody this? Cuz like even if you wanted to end this with a musical number, why yep. would you choose this song? We're of an age where what we think of as the iconic Broadway musicals are the sort of mega musicals of the late 80s, early 90s. Sure. sure. But I think for a certain generation, a, a chorus line is the definitive Broadway musical. It was so iconic, and I think it was so a part of the culture. And the, again, it's the idea of this song is the final show-stopping number of this Broadway musical. So it's like, it's the song to go out on because it is quite literally how the show ends is with this right. number. Do they talk about it at all in the commentary as to like why they picked this? It's so funny. They don't say almost anything. They're just like, and wow. this is a parody of one from the musical A Chorus Line. That's it. Yeah. They don't really explain anything about why they chose to do that. But I think you're right. I think it's partly for the people who wrote it. Mm. That would be a very recognizable musical if you were like, you know, steeped in Broadway. I also think that this song, even in the context of the musical, is kind of sinister, right? Yeah. Because it's Yeah, a, for sure, for sure. Because it's a very ironic song yes. about, like, how all these individual individuals get kind of turned into the chorus, right? Yeah. This yeah. sort of synchronized, anonymous group of people that are on the stage in a show. 
And, yeah. you know, the lyrics are very ironic from that standpoint, this idea yeah. of focusing on one, right? One person, when, but actually it's this group of people exactly. that are all dressed identically, right? Yeah, exactly. And so there is kind of a sinister aspect to the song, and I wonder if they're sort of picking up on that a bit too, of just the way it's used in the musical. It's kind of similar to the way it's used in this. It's both like a fun, big musical number, but also kind of creepy and weird. Yeah. Though I do want to touch on what you said before, because you said for a group of people who are steeped in Broadway culture, this would resonate. But I think that's the key is that Mm -hmm. as we sort of learned from Michael Price, like actually the Simpsons writers were not big Broadway nerds. And I think that's part of it is that this was one of those things that much like we sort of talk about the parodies on the Simpsons and and some of the films that we've talked about we've just absorbed it through cultural osmosis. So I think that's maybe part of it too, is that like, it's one of those things that just everybody knew. So they knew they could parody it and people would get the reference. Unlike something like Best Little Whorehouse, which like, like or <laughs> Patron Wagon, where we both were like, wait, this thing actually exists. Like everyone knows a chorus line. Everyone mm-hmm. knows this number. But I, you're right. I think there's, there is something sinister to the song in the context of the show, certainly within the context of the film and the way Mm. Attenborough stages and delivers that number in the film. So to that point, let's tuck into the show and into the film, because when Nate and I were coming up with what we were going to cover for this season, I was really gunning for a chorus line, (laughs) despite the fact I had not actually seen the film. But I knew the show and the backstory of the show, and I was really excited to talk about it with Nate, knowing our mutual histories and both being sort of theater nerds. So I really wanted to, like, discuss this with him. So with that being said, Nate, how would you sum up a chorus line in a sentence? All right. 20 Broadway professionals try to survive the meat grinder (laughs) (laughs) of the casting process. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That is a very good read of the film. And we're going to get into that. I will also say, I don't think it's not a good read of the musical itself, but I think it speaks to the decisions that were made in the adaptation of the film from the, uh, from the stage show. Um, So what is your background with this movie, Nate? Like absolutely nothing. I mean, (laughs) I, (laughs) I have never seen this movie. I've never seen the musical. I knew Before we did this series, I knew nothing about the musical. So it's not something that I even really... Did you even know it existed? Like, had you heard of it? Not really. No, I've never... Like you said, I'm more familiar with the sort of late 80s musicals. Mm -hmm. Mm Because, you know, that was after I was born, and those were the things I saw in theaters. Totally. This was sort of before my time. And as someone who's not, like, super versed in Broadway musicals, this was something that totally flew under the radar for me. So... I don't have a lot of context for this, which is maybe an interesting way to watch the movie first and have a conversation with yeah. someone who, who is more familiar. So, yeah. How about you? What's your background with the show and the movie? I had never seen the movie prior to this. So I knew the movie existed. Uh, weirdly, it was, I think we've talked about this, how my dad owned a couple of VHSs that he clearly had bought from the local video store when it <laughs> shut down. So it was in those like white clamshell cases and like sure. the cardboard VHS had been cut out to like fit within the case. So anyway, we owned this film, but I never got around to watching it. But weirdly enough, the year my wife and I started dating, so this was a very long time ago, mm-hmm. uh, she was in a production of A Chorus Line. And so oh. I went and saw, that was my introduction to a chorus line was this. I didn't know she was in that. That's cool. Yeah, she was. This is a weird tangent, but basically there was a an all boys school in Toronto that because they were an all boys school, when they did their 
musicals and plays, they had to bring in female talent to be the female characters because they didn't have any at this all boys school. And they would hire like professional actors to be in the show. So it's this very weird. Now my wife at the time would have been like 20 years old, but the woman playing Sheila was like legit in her thirties. So you have like 17 year olds, 20 somethings. And then in some (laughs) cases, like people who are quite literally the age of Sheila in the show. Right. But anyway, so yeah, she was in this production of A Chorus Line. That was my introduction to A Chorus Line. And then a couple years ago, it played Stratford Festival, which is near our hometown Mm -hmm. for our non-Canadian. Like, even if you're Canadian, you might not be super familiar with the Stratford Festival. Stratford Festival is like this big theater festival that runs. It's predominantly known for its Shakespearean plays. But in the last, I would say, 30 years or so, they started incorporating contemporary musicals into it and especially in the last i would say like 10 years they've been really instead of doing sort of like the classic broadway canon of like your sound of musics and all the rogers and hammerstein stuff they started doing more modern contemporary stuff so a couple years ago they did a chorus line and it it was actually quote-unquote famous because they got permission from the sort of whoever holds the rights to do it in a thrust stage setting uh, oh. again for people who aren't like super into theater this is normally there's a proscenium staging and when you do a show like this and you want to make substantial changes you have to get permission you can't just like go ahead and do it normally canadian productions do not make the <laughs> wikipedia page but this one did because it oh. was like a substantial reworking of the show cool. so that was my first time seeing it as in a professional setting mm-hmm. but also and we're going to talk about this a couple times as well it's going to come up a bunch once my wife and I were dating and after she had been in the production, there was a documentary that came out called Every Little Step that was about the staging of the 2006 Broadway revival of A Chorus Line. Oh. It is a fascinating film. I'm going to reference it a bunch, but it basically is a history of the show and then also the making of this revival. And it's famous because it was the first time the Actors' Equity Foundation allowed cameras to record the audition process. So it's kind of this like meta thing of like, A Chorus Line is all about actors auditioning to be in a show and the film is all about actors auditioning to be in the show about actors auditioning to be in a show (laughs) so it's like anyway it's incredible spoiler alert i'm going to recommend it at the end of the show but like if you enjoy this and even if you didn't really enjoy this but you're like kind of a theater nut like you have to see this film it's incredible cool so i had this knowledge of a chorus line and the other thing that i knew was that the film was sort of famously not well liked Certainly yeah. by the theater community, but also just in general. Like it, it didn't do well. It right? did not. I mean, yeah, it did not do well. And we're going to dig into maybe some of the reasons why. But because it was sort of forgotten and it was such a flop, I don't know anybody who, if you say, like, what are the top five movie musicals? No one's name dropping a chorus. Line. No, for sure. For sure. Yeah. But, you know, like just as much as it's fun to kind of revisit movies that have an amazing reputation that precedes them, it's also fun to go back to some of these flops and kind of explore whether they actually deserve that reputation or not. Exactly. I mean, we've already done that once with Paint Your Wagon, so why not do it again, right? (laughs) Well, and the thing, the real reason that I was pushing so hard for us to do this was that even though we had both not seen the film, I came at this having seen the musical and Nate you were coming at it having not seen the musical so we were both going to be coming to this adaptation with very different eyes one of us knowing the show one of us not knowing the show and I was very curious 
to see how that would affect our perception of it and if it would mean that we would feel very, very differently or would we end up feeling the same? So that's sort of like this, what we're going to uncover, I guess, the over experiment. the course of this conversation is whether or not we feel the same way. But before we get into all that, let's give you the actual synopsis because we sort of danced around it. Here's the plot synopsis for A Chorus Line. And this is taken from the 1980s VHS that we had kicking around at my parents' place. Amazing. Um, it's a short one. So here we go. <clears throat> Broadway's longest-running musical, at the time anyway, winner of nine Tony Awards and the Pulitzer Prize is now one of the most sizzling screen sensations of the year. <laughs> Nominated for three Academy Awards, a chorus line tells the high-voltage story of a group of young performers who audition for the chorus of a Broadway musical. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, that's it. A, that's literally all they have. That's terrible. They actually spend more time talking about the accolades than they do the actual description. They spend more the time talking about the accolades of the stage play than True. the plot of the film. True. Also, you know, my understanding is that, like, even their description is kind of contentious. About, uh, yes. About yes. whether or not these are even supposed to be young performers or not. Ah, I mean, the thing that's weird is that even within the movie, they make a point of talking about their age, right? Yeah. And a lot. And yeah. like the folks that are, you know, nearing 30 are sort of embarrassed about their age. It's sort of like, you know, pointed out that they're maybe kind of on the tail end of their career mm -hmm. in this kind of performance. So it's not like it's below the surface in the movie, <laughs> nope. but but my understanding is that, you know, the words of the director and other stuff have kind of created controversy around this idea of, are these supposed to be young people breaking into Broadway, or are they supposed to be people who are career dancers who are maybe struggling to stay in the game? Well, and to that end, I, this is, I mean, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but let's talk about it because like, this is the number one sort of bone of contention of people who do not like this film, because the stage show makes it very explicit what they are. And mm. they ain't newcomers. Right. It's the show is about people who are desperate for essentially one last gig. Like the opening number of God, I hope I get it is it's not because like, oh, I want to break into Broadway. It's like I've run out of money. I've run out of health care. Like right. if I do not get this, I will not survive. I need this show. Like that's the last line of the song is, oh God, I need this show. So it's about people who are just struggling to keep up. And allegedly the director's view of it was like, oh no, it's a bunch of kids trying to break into the wonderful world of the great white way. And people who knew the show, including certain cast members, and we'll get into it, they were like, no, it absolutely is not. And that's that this is the problem with the film is that it doesn't know what it's supposed to be. Yeah, which is interesting. I don't know if I totally read it that way, but we'll get there. To understand the film, you have to understand the show. And to understand the show, you have to understand the context of where the show is coming from. So basically, Broadway is at a very interesting period when A Chorus Line debuts. There had been a number of very, very expensive flops at the time. And the result was that Broadway was struggling. And, you know, as tough as that is for producers and for audience members who want to go see a Broadway show, it perhaps hits the performers the hardest. A ton of people were just finding themselves out of work. 
and without prospects. And also, too, like you have to remember, this is the 70s. You know, side hustles were not the same. Like you couldn't make money selling shit on Etsy. Like you were working in restaurants and on Broadway. And like if it dries up, like what do you do? So the other thing to keep in mind is that the origins of the show is a little contentious over the years. Certain people have taken credit for the show that maybe shouldn't have. So what I've been able to gather from my my research is this is sort of what the current telling of how this all happened. It is a little bit different than the sort of like what is has long been the standing record and certainly what every little step even posits. But mm-hmm. essentially there were two dancers and forgive me, I'm probably not going to get this guy's name right. Mekon Peacock and Tony Stevens. And they were among this sort of group of out of work actors that were trying to come up with a way to like move forward and like find something to do. And they they wanted to basically build a troupe of Broadway dancers, people who were similar to them. And they came up with this idea and they reached out to their friend, uh, director and choreographer Michael Bennett, and asked him to sort of join forces with them. He also had been sort of thinking about this, but he didn't want to just form a troupe. He thought, I want to put together a group of like-minded people and tell a story and make a show out of this. So what they ended up doing was these two guys basically got a bunch of their friends together, a group of people which are known as gypsies. That term is sort of being phased out, but that was what they were sort of referred to at the time. And bring all of these dancers together. You know, they bought cheap wine and they all got together at their New York apartment and they set up a tape recorder. And they said, tell us about your lives. Tell us about you know, what's going on? What What are your ambitions? What? How did you get here? Michael Bennett originally was just sort of attending as one of these people to sort of help tell his story. And as the event started to unfold, he started taking more of a, a leadership role. Mm-hmm. And I want to play a clip from that documentary where you get to hear Michael Bennett and sort of what he has to say. I really want to talk about us now, I don't know whether there anything will come of this, or whether there is anything of this. I think we're all pretty interesting, and that all of you are pretty interesting. I think that maybe there's a show in there somewhere, which would be called a chorus one. So. Bennett takes these recorded conversations, which were a form of group therapy for a lot of these people. Sure. And he basically says, I I really think there's something here. And he spends some time over the next couple of years developing a show, taking these stories and basically forming a show about his tribe, for lack of a better term. He brings in James Kirkwood Jr. and Nicholas Dante to write the book or or the script of the show. Nicholas Dante was actually one of the dancers who participated in these taped conversations, but he was also a writer. And so he sort of said, like, I think you can help sort of craft the story. Uh, he brings in a guy named Edward Klebin to write the lyrics. And he brings in Marvin Hamlish, fresh off of his Oscar wins for The Sting and The Way We Were, oh. to write the score. Yeah, yeah, the guy who wrote, or I guess he didn't technically write the music for The Sting, but he arranged all the music for The Sting, which is, again, one of my all-time favorite movies and something we should 100% cover. I don't, I don't know if they ever parody it on The Simpsons. Oh, but they totally they, do. Yeah, they must. Uh, but... So anyway, uh, he brings all these people together and they start working on the show downtown. The 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 documentary makes a big f- emphasis on the downtown element. And sure. Nate, you you would be familiar with this because it was produced by the Public Theater. 
Yeah, absolutely. Right around the corner from where uh, our my, the offices of, of my uh, current employer used to be. Um, yeah. So very familiar with that area. And, uh, you know, obviously a very storied theater as well in New York. Yeah, exactly. And so but what was sort of different about this show was this sort of what becomes known as the workshop. This was sort of the first show to do this, where basically they were given money by the public theater to just sort of try things out, to start workshopping the script, to try different things, to they were under no pretenses of this is a finished product, but just like let's spend the summer trying to figure out what this show is, because it's not a very traditional show in the, the way that we think of a Broadway show. I mean, it's essentially just a series of monologues. Right. But Joseph Papp and the public theater gave them permission and time to sort of figure it out. So it opens off Broadway at the public theater on April 15th, 1975. It's directed by Michael Bennett and co-choreographed by Bennett and a guy named Bob Avian, who would go on to direct the Broadway revival in 2006. The show was so buzzy and like it like basically they talk about in the documentary how there's like whispers of these things going on downtown. And this was like because, again, it was like New York was very different at the time than we think of it now. And so, yeah, basically the buzz was so big for this show that the entire run at the public theater sold out almost immediately. Wow. And so it opens in April and by July of the same year, they move it to Broadway. That's like, that's how successful it was like straight out of the gate. So it opens July 25th at the Schubert theater. And again, it's a very interesting time in Broadway because I read this stat that Broadway was at an all time low of around 6.6 6 million people were attending Broadway at the time. Mm -hmm. And a chorus line alone shot those figures up to 8.8 .8 million. This wow. one show. Wow. So it essentially revived a, a an industry that was really, really struggling at the time. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense, too, because, you know, when you think about, like, the Oscars, like, a lot of the movies that win are movies about movie making, right? Totally. And so this is kind of the same sort of thing where it's a Broadway show about Broadway and about yeah. what it means to be part of these musicals. And also, like, everyone, of course, loves to see behind the scenes and yes. to kind of dig into some of the scandal or some of the maybe sleazier parts of what's going on yep. or that kind of part of it. So I feel like this show definitely has a bit of that juice to work with. 100%. I mean, that's one of the appeals of the show is it really puts the audience in the audition process to the point where one of the things that they do, and it doesn't necessarily come across as much in the film, but the character of Zach, the director who's holding these auditions, mm -hmm. he basically exists for almost, I would say, like 90% of the show as simply a voice. What's referred to in the theater as the voice of God. It's someone on a mic that you can hear on stage, but you can't see. Sure. And it's the same for the audience. You literally just hear this voice. And if you, at least in the productions I've seen of it, the actor playing the director is actually in the audience at the back of the theater. He's got like a little desk lamp. He is present. It's not pre-recorded or anything. But the idea being that you were literally sitting witnessing this sort of audition process. And and like you said, yeah, the audiences got to feel like they were a part of the show. It was much more immersive in that sense than than a lot of similar shows at the time. The cast was was formed up of a number of dancers from those early taped sessions. Some of the notable cast members over the years, which again, these these are names that maybe are not super familiar to non-theater people, but if you're a big theater person, like these names are synonymous with Broadway, certainly of the era. Donna McKechnie, who played Cassie, was like basically the role was written around her life. Like that whole oh, wow. subplot is basically her 
life story. Kelly Bishop, who plays Sheila, is perhaps best remembered. Nate, I don't know if you knew this, but the woman who who originated the role of Sheila is Emily Gilmore from Gilmore Girls. Oh, I love that. That's yeah, so, she, I could absolutely see her energy in that role. Hold on, I'm looking up aneurysm in our medical dictionary to see if I just had one. And she won the Tony for it. Like, this was her breakthrough role. She played it for wow. years. There's some bootleg footage of her performing this part, and she is phenomenal. So I will send it to you to watch, and we'll put it in the show notes for people to watch as well, because you really, like, you have to see this, especially if you know Emily Gilmore, and then seeing her play this role of the sort of, like, sassy, brassy, like, takes no shit character in the show. Like, it is perfect casting. Jeff Hislop was in the show, which... One of my faves. Yes, to Canadians is best remembered as Jeff the Mannequin from today's special, but I think... We both saw him as the Phantom. Absolutely. I saw him as Phantom of the Opera and in even Toronto. got a little message from him. I sent him a letter telling him how much oh, I liked no him in the show and got a message back from him. Very nice guy, you know, as far as I know. And yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, that it's in the show. very cool that, yeah, he was, and he's in the Norman Jewison and Jesus Christ Superstar movie. He's one of the dancers in that. Oh, uh, I, didn't, I actually I, didn't know that. That's yeah, I didn't know that for awesome. years either. Uh, a friend of mine recently made me aware of that. And when you watch it, you go, oh, 100% that sweaty guy uh, in the <laughs> leotard is Jeff Heslop. Sure. Uh, Anne Ranking, who is like best known as Fosse's muse, and she is quite right. literally, like she is a goddess. <laughs> like she's Broadway royalty. She was in it. The revival featured people such as Charlotte D'Amboise, Jason Tam, Jessica Lee Golden. Again, if you're not into like Broadway, these names mean nothing. But if you are, you're like, oh, yeah, like these are big, big people. So sure. The show was eventually nominated for 12 Tony Awards and won nine of them, which is pretty amazing, including best musical, best book, best score, best director, best choreographer and several of the acting awards. And the thing that everybody talks about is that it also won the Pulitzer Prize for drama which people always say it's like one of the few musicals to win the Pulitzer Prize for drama. There's actually been 10 over the years that have won this <laughs> award, so it's maybe not as prestigious as they make it out to be. But some of the other best-known shows that have won both include South Pacific, Rent, uh, perhaps most famously Hamilton. When you look at the trajectory of A Chorus Line and Hamilton, you'll see a lot of parallels, including but not limited to the fact that they both started at the public. Right. And most recently, I think the show that won it was A Strange Loop, which, Nate, I know you saw on Broadway shortly yeah, before it closed. Totally. And and in some ways, I actually feel like shares a little bit of DNA with this show. Just mm-hmm. that one is more about someone who's trying to break into Broadway. Absolutely. Uh, and the sort of, you know, dealing with identity and all, all of that. But obviously, it's in very good company. Yes, absolutely. So the show ran until April of 1990. So from 1975 to 1990. And became the longest running show on Broadway, running for a total of 6,137 performances. Though it was eventually beat out by Cats in 1997, which was then subsequently beat out by Phantom of the Opera in 2006, which still, although it closes in literally 12 days as of this recording, has the record for the longest running show on Broadway. But I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is the longest running Broadway show that originated on Broadway. Right, because Cats and Phantom are both are from the West, West End. End. So the revival of Chicago might have actually beaten it out, but because it's the revival, like again, there's all these sort of like <laughs> caveats and asterisks. But yeah, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, the stat of like Chorus Line is the longest running American musical on Broadway, 
in its original run or something like that. Sure, sure, sure. um, It was eventually revived on Broadway in 2006, as I mentioned, and that audition process was documented in the film Every Little Step. And it's since become like one of the most beloved pieces of the American musical theater canon. Perhaps, as you sort of address, Nate, it's because it talks about the very people who are in it. You know, it is a show about Broadway, about performers, and it resonates both with the audience and the performers alike. So that's the context of the show. Like, it's this massive success, and like all massive successes on Broadway, it sort of more or less guarantees that a film adaptation is going to happen. And Universal acquires the rights for about $5.5 million, which at the time is a gargantuan amount of money. And uh, they actually hired Michael Bennett as a producer and director. However, (laughs) (laughs) right. We've heard this story before. Yeah, exactly. Uh, The film kind of goes into development hell. And along the way, Bennett eventually leaves the production because his proposal was to present the film as the audition for the movie version of the stage play. Ooh, uh, interesting. Which the producers, and one of the producers was actually Cy Fuller, who famously was one of the producers of the film adaptation of Cabaret, Bob Fosse's film adaptation. Mm -hmm. I guess the producers basically were like, no, 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 that's way too meta. We're not doing that. People (laughs) want to see the show. Give them the show. Sure. Um, Production of the film was scheduled to begin shortly after the stage show became popular, but... They basically, because the show was so successful and was still playing to standing room only crowds for so long, basically they said, we're not going to start production until the show, the success of the show starts to wane. Right. We've heard that too before. Which is a very common approach. And I think, in my opinion, is part of the problem with a lot of these movie musical adaptations in that they wait until they're not as financially viable on stage. And by that point, their cultural staying power has kind of worn off. Like I think of movies like Les Mis and Phantom that come out like 20 to 30 years after they originate on Broadway. And it's like, those were like cultural phenomenons that nobody gives a shit about anymore. Like musical theater people maybe do, but like it doesn't have the public staying power and the weight that a movie should have. Well, and we're, you know, we're at a point with this movie where it's long enough after the original stage production that now it needs to be adapted in time as well as in medium. Yeah, yeah, because it's 10 years later. Right, started in the 70s and now it's the 80s. And, you know, I think that's another gripe that a lot of people have about this movie is some of the sort of more 80s aspects of it, which, you know, don't really bother me as much, but it becomes a thing when you wait this long. Well, and that's that's actually, again, this is part of why I wanted to talk about this film, because it's coming out at a very, very specific time in Broadway theater history. It's, you know, it's 1985. Cats opens in the West End in 1981, comes to Broadway in 1982. And Cats is sort of considered to be the beginning of the West End mega musical craze. Sure. The same year that the film comes out, 1985, is when Les Mis debuts on the West End. And again, Les Mis is... You know, quintessential mega musical, you know, these giant sets, rotating sets, like it's next level. It's theater with a capital T. And then Phantom opens the next year in 1986 and comes to Broadway in 1988. So we're really at this turning point where Broadway is about to be overtaken by the mega musical. They're characterized by these massive sets, opulent costumes, over-the-top theatrics, like spectacle is the name of the game. Like Phantom literally has a chandelier crash over the audience. Right. A chorus line could not be more different than totally. that. Totally. It's like, it's 20 people on stage, under a spotlight, giving a series of monologues. Mm-hmm. But it was 
1975, a smash hit, like we said, it's selling to standing room only crowds. But by 1985, things are really starting to change. So I think that partly contributes to the lack of the film's success is just like people aren't necessarily interested in this kind of show in the same way they were 10 years prior. Right. And especially because movie musicals already are a difficult proposition to like get the tone right and find the right sort of balance of scale and realism. You know, I think back to some of our conversations about, you know, like this is what Bob Fosse does really well. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I mean, it's impossible to avoid the comparison between this movie and the first scene of all that jazz this oh, is basically oh, just, i mean yes a hundred percent this movie I, like i refer to it as diet all that jazz you cannot help but watch this and go this is just a lesser version of all that jazz but see that's the thing that's funny is that of course all that jazz the movie doesn't have any kind of stage version of it it's only no. a movie and it comes out between the stage show of a chorus line and the movie yes. a chorus line yes it's literally that's 79 so it's basically right in the midpoint right and to be fair, I like all that jazz is one of those films where it's like to call it a musical is maybe a little unfair. Like, I don't it's not really a musical. It's it has musical numbers. Sure. But I, I don't think of it in the traditional sense of a musical. Right. But it, it it is it is musical. It's, adjacent, it's really but, yeah, it's really more a movie about Broadway. And um, I will say this is something that I want to talk about with this film. One of the things that this film struggles with is that it struggles to define the rules of its musicality. Yeah. Of like, is it? diegetic is it non-diegetic is it in their heads is it and we'll like we'll talk about that but needless to say everybody knew this was going to be a struggle to adapt sure so much so that basically a bunch of directors were like i don't want to touch this thing once michael bennett dropped out they really struggled to find someone to adapt it because they were just like i don't want to touch this thing i don't think it can be done and it's too beloved it's not going to work and i would maybe argue that there's some truth to that uh, some of the names that were dropped of people that tried to to adapt it, Adrian Lyne, who is perhaps best remembered for his erotic thrillers in the like late eighties, early nineties, but at the time was best known as being the director of Flashdance. Oh, okay, sure. He was I offered mean, the chance to direct it and said, "No, I don't want to do it because I don't want to be pigeonholed as the musical guy." Right, which is fair. And Sidney Lumet also refused to touch it huh. which i'm like if sydney lamette can't figure this out like if that guy can't figure it out nobody stands a chance so naturally they hire richard attenborough who had just is fresh off of his oscar win for uh you know gandhi right and you know gandhi and a chorus line yeah i could see why those are two things that are very similar you know he's a british filmmaker there was a lot of concern about like this is a quintessentially american story can a brit like pull it off right you know and and when you look back at his filmography at this point he's directed gandhi and and granted he's wins best picture and he wins best director but prior to that he's directed a movie called magic which is about a killer ventriloquist doll voiced by anthony hopkins okay and a bunch of war movies including uh young winston a movie that called like young sheldon yeah, I think so. A movie called Oh, What a Lovely War, which is apparently is apparently a musical comedy, but it is huh. about like World War Two or World War One of the big wars. Uh, and he also directed A Bridge Too Far, which gave us the great Simpsons gag of, hey, buddy, I got a movie for you. A Fridge Too Far. 
But of course, to our generation, of course, like when I think of Richard Attenborough, I think of Jurassic Park. Right. And Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah, his acting roles. Yeah. And he also was in the direct-to-video adaptation of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which I don't know. Did you ever see that? No. In what oh, role? Yeah. Uh, he plays uh, Joseph's dad. Uh, okay. which, uh, uh J- Joseph's father. Who, I can't remember. His, uh, Jacob. Jacob. Yeah. Jacob, Jacob of Jacob sure. and Sons. Yeah. Jacob! Jacob and Sons! Right. So the screenplay was written by a guy named Arnold Schulman, who I am not familiar with, but apparently did have a couple of Oscar nominations under his belt. The cinematography is by a guy named Ronnie Taylor, who was a camera operator on Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. Okay. So, you know, no slouch, but uh, he then went on to be the cinematographer for a bunch of like Dario Argento horror movies, okay. including Dario Argento's Phantom of the Opera, which is Oof. not good. And it's edited by a guy named John Bloom, who, again, nothing in his filmography really jumped out, though he did edit a couple episodes of the miniseries adaptation of Angels in America. Okay, so which, you know, same family in some ways. Of, yeah, exactly. You know, and, sure. and I think both those guys, both Ronnie Taylor and John Bloom, also worked on Gandhi. So it's like they were right, Attenborough's his guys. guys. Sure. Yeah. But it was choreographed by this guy named Jeffrey Hornaday, who we actually, this is, I thought was really interesting, Nate. He actually was Aggie in The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, like the film adaptation. Oh. Yeah. Wait, so he was, wait, so there's the Aggies. That's the, that's yeah. the team. Who's Aggie? I don't know. That's the thing. But he's literally. <laughs> he was in that movie, though. He's in that movie, apparently. Okay. Uh, but he was also the choreographer of Flashdance. Okay. Um, and uh, the other thing that he choreographed that is perhaps, you know, of this list is 100% my favorite. The George Lucas penned, Francis Ford Coppola directed Disney 3D film starring Michael Jackson, Captain EO. Uh, which fucking rules, and uh, that would explain why I love the choreography on this I've, film. I've still never seen that movie. Uh, it's on YouTube. You should check it out. I should check that. As is often the case with these film adaptations, a number of changes t- were made to the score. They cut a bunch of songs and then added a bunch of songs so that right. you know, because you, you always got to add something new so you can get that best original song Oscar nomination, which <laughs> they got their nomination, so it worked out in their favor. And yeah, reviews on this thing. They were mixed. Vincent Camby of the New York Times hated it, saying Mr. Attenborough is listed as the director of A Chorus Line, but what he seems to actually have done is act as the escort to the screen of a reasonable facsimile of the show, not noticing it was dying en route. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Not a kind word. You can read the entire, like, Wikipedia has the entire New York Times, like, review available it is scathing it is it is a very fun read but roger ebert on the other hand actually really liked it and gave it 3.5 stars okay uh, and called it one of the most intelligent and compelling movie musicals in a long time huh interesting uh, and then Kelly Bishop, who we mentioned before, Emily Gilmore, mm-hmm. uh, the original stage Sheila, famously trashed the film. Now, I cannot actually find a source for this quote. I did some digging, uh-huh. but it is listed all over the place. I was really hoping it was like in an interview or something and I could like find it on YouTube and then like we could play the clip, but I mm-hmm. can't. So I'm just going to read it. But it was appalling when director Richard Attenborough went on a talk show and said, this is a story about kids trying to break into show business. I almost tossed my TV at the window. I mean, what an idiot. It's about veteran dancers looking for one last job before it's too late for them to dance anymore. No wonder the film sucked. <laughs> so again, mixed reviews. I actually reached out to a couple of people who are currently on Broadway, Broadway stars, 
who I follow on Instagram and for whatever reason will respond to my messages. And one of the people I spoke to, she did say that like she grew up watching this movie and absolutely adored it. She subsequently went on to be in a touring production and it was one of the things that like made her want to do this. And she's of a younger generation. So like she wouldn't have been around for like the original era. It seems to be like you either love it or you hate it. There's not much wiggle room around that. But the film, you know, it had a budget of $25 million and grossed only 14 So yeah. I think it's Oof. safe to say it was a flop. And it just kind of forgotten about. To, to that end, like I said, both of us had never seen it before. Weirdly, my wife, being who she is, she grew up watching this movie religiously. You know, huh. uh, didn't watch Sesame Street, but did watch a chorus line. <laughs> um, so she thinks quite highly of it and quite fondly of it. I wouldn't go so far as to say it doesn't exist like the best little whorehouse, but I even did like an informal like Instagram poll amongst our friends. And like mm-hmm. we went to school with a bunch of theater people of like, who loves this movie? And so many people were like, I don't think I've even seen this movie. Like right. it just for a such a beloved show, the film kind of just is like forgotten i mean it is interesting though that like you know two people who have been in the show grew up watching this movie totally um, and i think it, it probably just speaks to the fact that even movies that are not well remembered are still more accessible usually than a stage show right yeah you're you're really at the whims of whether it's even playing anywhere and then whether you can afford to go and so if you're really into musicals you can still you know see a reasonable facsimile <laughs> To yeah. use the, you know, that quote of a show in your home or in a movie theater. So it kind of makes sense that like the people who are really deeply geeky about this stuff might have seen it on screen and still loved it because, you know, they love musicals and they love the story of Broadway and all of that kind of stuff, even if it's maybe not the best version of the show or the best musical. I, Nate, let's let's dig into this, because like now that we've gotten all that context out of the way and I, I know that was a lot of stuff to take him. But the show, as I sort of said, it's really weird because it's very light on plot. It is an audition f- to be in the chorus of a show and it's just a series of monologues. And then at the end of the show, eight people, four girls, four guys, get selected to be in the chorus. The other four don't. And it's like, all right, we, st- we start rehearsals next week. And then there's the big show stopping number. But that's the show. Like, there's no plot, really. But what's interesting is these stories that come from these characters. So to that point, what were some of the stories that resonated with you? I mean, Sheila is the character that jumps out at me. And I Mm -hmm. think is one of my understanding is that she was sort of a favorite from the show. But like also in the movie, she's very well acted and a very compelling character. She has a great number. And she has a great monologue about sort of growing up, you know, in in not a great household and being sort of transported by going to the ballet and wanting a better future. And then, you know, these other characters kind of come in and express a similar sort of experience. And I I thought that was a very powerful one. But there are honestly, there are a lot of good monologues. And I think one of the strengths of this movie is that I think the cast is really good for the most part. I think especially all of the ensemble is very, very good, right? And they're not actors you would recognize for the most part. No, no, not at all. In fact, so Sheila, who is easily the standout for me, uh, she was actually in All That Jazz. 
Oh, really? She has, I believe she is referred to as menage participant number one. (laughs) So I think, yeah, so she's not a major role or anything, but she is, she was in that show. And then she was also a replacement Cassie on Broadway in, I believe, 1977. So she has Mm -hmm. like a history with the show. I rewatched the film again last night to sort of refresh my memory because I had watched it a few weeks ago in prep for this. The moment that really resonated with me is when near the end of the film she talks about how she's got a daughter who's nine years old and and i think she says earlier in the film that she's 30 she says she's so stubborn and she's so hard and then she says god help her she wants to be a dancer that was such a beautiful moment for me and and again it's it's so like the actress's name is vicky frederick and i i really do think that like she gives such a phenomenal performance in this yeah totally what about you were were there any of the monologues that really stood out to you? She was definitely my favorite, one of my favorite characters. What was interesting for me is that the Paul monologue, mm-hmm. uh, it's one of the highlights, I would say, of the stage show. It's incredibly gut-wrenching. You know, it's this guy who basically talks about the fact that, you know, he's gay and his parents, you know, didn't always accept him and he's in this drag show and... You know, the punchline is basically like he has this tough relationship with his dad and he's going to go off on tour. And his dad says to the touring manager, take care of my son. And he says, that was the first time my father ever called me that. Yeah. Um, it is a gut wrenching moment in the show. There is not a dry eye in the house. And in the film, it just kind of falls really flat. I don't know if it's the actor's fault or if it's the way it's directed. I don't know. But. That was one of those moments where I was really bummed because it was like, I know how good this can be. And and it's funny because in um, Every Little Step, they show the actor who subsequently gets the role, they show his audition and he breaks down. The entire audition panel is breaking down. Yeah. And he essentially gets the role on the spot sure. because it, he does such a phenomenal job. That's, that's the first time he ever called me that. Sorry. <laughs> well, you got me. Oh, man, for an audition, Jesus. It was excellent. Okay, wait outside. <laughs> I'll talk to you. I'm crying. <laughs> I have Sign him up. So to compare this sort of like middling kind of like eh performance, it was just like, yeah, like this is kind of I think this is one of the things that people sort of take issue with the film is that like these moments that should be heartbreaking kind of just come off as a, not flippant isn't the right word. but Right. I know. I totally get that. I think that's the thing is the movie is at its best when it's not doing the big moments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And yeah. like a lot of the stuff in between is great, but then the things that should be the high moments of the show kind of don't work. And well, and it's tough too because monologues are very much a theater, a stage trope isn't the right word, but it's it is a function of a stage show. You right. don't really get monologues so much in movies outside of like Bond villains monologuing to explain their evil plot, like trying to make a film adaptation work with that is going to be a huge challenge. Yeah. I feel like in film, you know, the equivalent is maybe a voiceover 
Yes. Uh, you know, and or also, you know, I'm thinking again about all that jazz, like all that jazz actually has. Uh, it is very theatrical, right? Yeah. But it has, you know, the way that they do it is they have him talking to death, <laughs> basically. Yes. Right. Well, and so it's dialogue, they, but it's but what he's saying is essentially a monologue. It's basically this, his ideas, but they, but by framing it as dialogue, it makes it more digestible as a movie. I think. And I think this is ultimately where I take issue with the film is that it never really establishes its rules. Mm-hmm. A, it takes a really long time to like. I think I checked last night. It's like twelve minutes into the movie. Like there's because they're doing the opening audition number, which is. Phenomenal. I'm not going to lie. Like, I thought that opening number, the choreography, the way it's shot, the way it's all put together is phenomenal. And then they start singing and it kind of comes out of nowhere and is a little bit jarring. Well, it's interesting because it doesn't start with them singing out loud, right? It's you hear it as a voiceover in someone's head. Yes. And then and then it sort of evolves and then suddenly they start singing out loud. But that's that's exactly my point is that. So it starts as a in their head sort of like voiceover type moment. Then it becomes them singing it visibly on stage, but probably not diegetically. Mm-hmm. And then it transitions into a series of monologues where each of these characters start by speaking their monologue and then evolving into singing their monologue. Right. So it's a little unclear if... I, I mean, I guess it's not that unclear. What they're saying is meant to be diegetic, but they're probably in the reality of the universe aren't singing this to the director. But it's just like, it just, everything becomes so muddied and the rules are so unclear as to like, what are we doing with these songs? How do they function in this world? I've come up, come back to this number of times in the series. That Netflix Matilda movie, like it establishes right out of the gate what the rules are. It's like, Take it or leave it. If you don't like it, leave now. Whereas like this is just like, I don't know how they're handling any of this stuff. And they flip flop back and forth. And I don't know that the director really had a handle of how he was going to do this. And he needed that to make this work. For the first like maybe half hour of this movie, I'm really into it. And same. I think it's, you know, the opening number is really great. There's some filmmaking stuff, which you can talk about later that I really like. And I actually like the moment of them sort of like it being in their head and then it becoming them singing it. Because to me, that felt very much like a natural progression of being like, you know, oh, okay, like when they're singing, this is their inner monologue. This is what they're thinking and feeling. And it's sort of showing us that. But I do agree that like further on, they do start doing things where I'm like, that's weird, right? Like there's one number and I can't remember which one it is, but it sort of ends with someone with their like fist up in the air, right? Or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. And then it cuts back to kind of a reality shot where you see everyone in the room and all of that. And they're still like lowering their arm. And it's just (laughs) like, well, that's weird because like, didn't this all just happen in their head? Like, shouldn't no one see that move happen? (laughs) You know? So like some of the rules are definitely a little fuzzy as the movie goes on, I think. And I think that's where the best movie musicals, they either say, we don't care, which is fine. Or they they make it very clear that, like, we've established the rules of our universe. And I think right. that's, like, even something like Grease. Okay, they just randomly break out into song. Yeah, no one does that in real life. And that's such a lazy criticism of a musical. Yeah. But, like, the rules are established and we don't take issue with them and they're consistent. And this film just doesn't, it's not consistent enough. And I think that's what I really struggled with. Like I said, 
I love the choreography. There's some amazing numbers in this, but it's just, it's diet, all that jazz. It wants so badly to be that. And it just can't do it because it, it's not being handled by a director who has a vision for what he wants to do. He's simultaneously just a, a reasonable facsimile of the show, but then also like, oh, I got to make this a film. And it's just like, it kind of lands in between and it's never really working for me. Yeah. So, okay. But let's talk more about some of these characters because there are a bunch of characters that I do think are worth talking about, including arguably the like one star in the show. Movie star, at least. Michael Douglas as Zach. He's clearly the biggest name in the film. Mm -hmm. He hasn't hit his sleazeball era of like (laughs) Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct. Right. But he's coming off of his like Hollywood breakthroughs. This is the film he makes immediately after. So he makes Romancing the Stone, which is a huge hit. Mm -hmm. They make the sequel, Jewel of the Nile. And then he makes this. So he's definitely like the biggest name. And I couldn't find any reference to this, but I'm assuming he was cast as like, we got to put some name in this let's put michael douglas in it but what's interesting is that he's not listed anywhere on the poster that is interesting so i looked at a bunch of the posters there's no cast billing which considering the premise of the show makes sense like the only name top billing is richard attenborough it's like (laughs) richard attenborough directs a course line or whatever there's none of the actors are listed including douglas which is surprising yeah but i guess it kind of fits with the theme of the film of like it's an ensemble it's not about any one individual right uh what did you think of douglas i actually think he's great in this interesting i think that he really is kind of perfect for what that role has to be right okay there isn't a lot to him you know as a character but but i think that he's able to toe the line of being like the the rage comes from a real place you know like right when when he is lashing out at people you buy it i think um yeah and i think he's a reasonable facsimile of bob fossey <laughs> basically right you know like yeah there is definitely you know it's not just the movie all that jazz but like you know even the musical number at the end and all of that there's so much fossey sort of like looming over this and 100%. i feel like in some ways, Michael Douglas is kind of a Fosse-like character, right? Who is irritable and lashing out at people and, like, clearly has some, like, romantic past with, you know, one of the people that he's, you know, um, worked with. Or, or several, possibly. Or several, possibly. So, like, I, I think he embodies that pretty well. Um, and there's that scene near the end, which I'd be curious if this happens in the stage show, where he finally comes out of the audience and comes onto the stage. Yeah, so he does eventually come onto the stage to talk to them. I mean, like I said, he spends most, at least this is my recollection, is he spends most of the time as just this voice of God. But I do believe he does eventually start interacting with them. One of my favorite lines in the the film, and to be honest, I don't remember if it's in the show, but it's when Sheila says to him, she's like, you won't remember this, but we did a show together once. And he goes, oh, I remember. And she goes, you're a rotten dancer. Why do you think I became a choreographer? Right. And like, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know that he nails the delivery of it, but it's such a great line. Sure. I mean, I I think he, when he comes on stage at the end, I think he delivers that very, very well because the temperature completely changes, Mm -hmm. right? Where, you know, when he's the voice of God sitting in the back of the theater, it's very antagonistic. And when he comes up on stage, 
you get this feeling of them finally seeing each other as human beings, right? right? And him kind of finally mm. getting close to what he's been asking for this whole time, which is he wants these people to open up and be real people and be authentic and all of this, but he's not really reciprocating until he gets up right. on stage and talks to them. Right. I think he does a really good job. The script doesn't do him, isn't giving him a lot. Right. Which kind of makes sense given the role in the source material, but they didn't really do a good job of fleshing it out with anything in addition. So I think with what he's got, he's doing a pretty good job. Yeah, I he doesn't work for me, but I don't know if it's just because I can't not see him as Michael Douglas. Right. You know, like it's that Tom Cruise effect. Well, Tom, people always call it the Tom Cruise effect, which I don't agree with because like I always buy Tom Cruise's whatever character he's playing. <laughs> but it's just like, I can't not see him as sleazeball Michael Douglas in, you know, Basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction, even the mm -hmm. game. Like, I just see that guy. So I find it really hard to buy him as, like, successful Broadway director, former dancer. Michael Douglas has never <laughs> done any of that shit. Like, it's I just mean, not... That's fair. I don't see him you know, as like, a dancer. He's not... Even a bad it's dancer. It's not believable. Yeah, like... And I think, again, not to continuously compare this to all that jazz, but, like... That's the brilliance of them casting Roy Scheider is like, yeah. I buy Roy Scheider in that role. I oh, buy 100%. him as, as Bob Fosse, even though the only other two movies I know him from are The French Connection, where he plays a cop, and Jaws, where he's the like, well, he's also a cop in Jaws, I guess. Like, he's a cop. He plays a cop in yeah. all these movies. He plays a cop. And then they cast him as Bob Fosse. And you're like, yeah, 100%. I totally buy yeah. this. Because he's built, he's built right. And he looks like someone who has smoked for... Yes, yeah, he looks like someone who's about to have a heart <laughs> Made out of leather. No, so I just, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's that's fair. He doesn't, he doesn't work for me. But I wonder how different I would feel if I saw this in 1985 and Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction and all those movies hadn't been made yet. You right, know? right. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't have as much of a hang up with him because I didn't really see those movies until fairly recently. I kind of right. skipped over all the like sex thrillers of the 80s because they didn't. <laughs> They never really did a lot for me. And honestly, watching them recently, I was kind of like, why does anyone like these movies? They're terrible. Um, no, Basic Instinct rules. You're wrong. No, no. <laughs> um, I knew him from like The Game and Romancing the yeah. Stone. And so, yeah, I don't have as much baggage with him maybe, but I think he does a good job, again, with what he's given. But could someone have been cast more faithfully to the character? Totally. You but know. you know who they wanted? Who? John Travolta. That sounds terrible to me. Yeah, no, that would have been horrible. That would have been an even worse piece of casting. Yeah. Because, like, again, Travolta would have been coming off of Grease, Saturday Night Fever. Like, he had the sort of musical chops, but, like, you would not buy it at all. No. Like, it just would not have worked. I mean, Michael Douglas is, you can buy him being the right age, at least. Certainly. Uh, so the a couple other names that I want to talk about. Terrence Mann plays Larry, who is sort of the assistant director. He's the one running the audition. Yeah. Did you recognize him? No. Okay, so he's probably best known for playing the role of Inspector Javert in the original Broadway production of Les Mis. Oh, okay. So he's got, like, very serious musical chops. Right, but doesn't sing, of course. Yeah, he's, like, the one character who doesn't sing, and, like, <laughs> he has a great voice. Ironically, he went on to marry Charlotte D'Amboise, who would play Cassie in the 2006 revival. Oh, so funny. it's sort of, like, this weird, like cyclical nature and then allison reed as cassie what what did you think of her she apparently had previously been in the touring production of a chorus line playing the role of cassie as well as val i did not like her yeah she's not good i i, <laughs> like... I think she misses on kind of every front 
which is a yeah. really awful thing to say. I mean, I don't like saying that about someone, but I th- don't think she's the strongest dancer, singer, or actor in the group, you know? And that's a problem because, yeah. and we're going to dig into this, because the film decides to pretty much rest the entire weight of the show on the Zach and Cassie relationship. Right. And it is not earned, man. Like, it just does not work. No. Not at I think I, I like I will say I like the bits with her and Larry, like when they're sort of talking about. Right. You know, she's like, oh, does so and so still have that apartment on 34th? And he's like, if you need money, I can give you like I buy their relationship way more than I buy any of the interaction between her and Zach. But I agree like she's she doesn't do it for me. Well, man. Like, and it's, it's one of those classic mistakes to where whenever movies or TV build up someone's skill level. Mm. it's such a dangerous game because <laughs> yeah they gotta they gotta they really that. have to deliver and it just doesn't happen right it's like yeah. zach is constantly talking about how she's too good to be in the chorus right and how she's yeah. just naturally a sort of a leading lady in the way she approaches dance and all this stuff and you watch her dance and it's kind of like i don't know there are better dancers in the chorus you <laughs> yeah. know like there just are like it's hard to even compare some of them you know so from that standpoint, it's uh, it's disappointing. Yeah, the the one, you know, we talked about Sheila and how I think she gives perhaps the best rounded performance in the film. Yeah, uh, the best dancer for me is definitely Greg Bird. It's either Greg Burge or Burke. I'm I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his name, but he plays Richie. He's oh, the yeah. one who has the surprise surprise number. Amazing surprise, and he. It like leaves everything on the floor in that thing. Like it is that was when I watched it for the first time, I was like, holy shit, why do people not like this movie? This is phenomenal. Like right. this number is so good. And again, this is a song that's not in the original show, so it's written for the film. And fun fact about him, he actually co-choreographed the short film of uh Bad, the Michael Jackson song, <laughs> which was famously okay. famously directed by Martin Scorsese. <laughs> well so. that makes sense then. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it kind of explains why he's as good as he is. Yeah, like that number was just like I literally wrote in my notes. I was just like, holy shit, that was unreal. 100 percent. And but then you're but Cassie's supposed to be better than him. Like what? Right. The film builds out the Cassie and Zach relationship to be sort of the main driving force of the narrative, which understandably in adapting this, they had to come up with something because, as I said, it's a series of monologues not really necessarily going to work on films they really needed to find something to latch onto, and apparently michael bennett when he left he advised the producers do not make the focus their relationship <laughs> it won't work yeah uh and i'm curious what do you think did it work not at all and, and, and you know <laughs> and, and a bunch of it is the woman who plays cassie it's partly mm-hmm. michael douglas and it's partly the script. They just, she doesn't have anything to do for most of that movie, right? No. It's like the best moments, I think, are during the opening musical number. They're actually intercutting, right? Between yeah. that and this taxi coming in from Brooklyn into Manhattan up to Broadway. And that is like the most cinematic part of the movie, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because they're actually using the language of film. Yeah, to, no, like, it, it is tell these two parallel stories. Yeah, the opening 20 minutes of the movie and maybe the final five minutes yeah. of the movie are the best part of the whole thing. Totally. It's like, 
everything in between, unfortunately, never rises right. to that level. But that's but. the thing is that like once she arrives, right, which is, you know, whatever, maybe a third of the way in or something like that, a quarter of the way in, she has nothing to do until the end. And like mm-hmm. literally you just watch her wandering around the backstage looking out the window you watch these flashbacks that she has oh the flashbacks are so bad we're like nothing happens it's like the love scenes in paint your wagon right i mean yeah. it's just literally her dancing in a loft and michael douglas watching her it's and there's yeah. nothing no, no story happens no dialogue really happens they're so inert and so to me it's just like the problem is if you want to focus on those characters you actually have to write them out and like yeah. turn them into real people and they're just not like well and it's interesting because the relationship does exist in the stage show and sure. they do address it the whole idea is that like Cassie basically leaves to go to LA to pursue this career opportunity she's seen as a star she's going to have this big breakthrough and then unfortunately like for many actors it just doesn't end up working out and right. then the idea is like i need a job please give me a job and he's saying you're too good for this but like then they try and show, not tell, which, like, is, in theory, what you're supposed to do. But they don't do a very good job of showing and not telling. And then it just, like, this is kind of implied in the flashbacks of, like, she gets a gig and, like, he's really happy for her. But then he's also sort of working his way up the ladder and then he gets this directing gig and, like, he becomes successful and she isn't successful. But it all is just kind of nebulous and, like, you kind of have to read between the lines. And this is the craziest thing, okay, is that Cassie is arguably the star of the stage show. And she has this iconic number called The Music in the Mirror. Mm -hmm. And the whole premise of this song is, the lyric is literally, God, I'm a dancer. A dancer dances. Give me a chance to dance for you. Like, one of her lines is literally, if you give me a job, the rest of the crap will get solved. And it's just basically, it's her pleading to him, I just need to dance. Please just give me this job. Give me a job and you instantly get me in. interesting is in those early workshops at the end of each performance the people who would get the job was changed every night it was a different set of characters oh interesting and for whatever reason michael bennett consistently was not letting cassie get the job right and the audience was pissed and he was just like i don't understand what's going on like the show isn't successful people are so upset like they're coming out unfulfilled and they're saying well you have to give cassie the job because there's no reason not to yeah she's too good but like that's not a reason not to get the gig you got to give her the gig and as soon as he started giving cassie the gig the audience loved the show so she's got this iconic number which was entirely built around donna mckechnie and her skills she sings a bunch and then it's like a three minutes dance solo it's incredible it's why subsequent replacement cast is so hard because like it's built around her right anyway this song is like a legend and they cut it from the film and replace it with a shittier 80s drum filled it's awful all and i'm like of, yeah all of her numbers like everything really about bad. it is is terrible and i'm just like why i don't understand like why you're deciding to make the film completely based around her but then you're getting rid of the one number that she has 
replacing it with a worse number, which you don't even need to do because you've already written this new number. Surprise, surprise. So it's not like you need to have this number written to get your best. Like it, nothing about it makes sense. And it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. No, me neither. There are actually a lot of things that I like about this movie, but this is the fatal misstep, right? Is just recentering it in this way and then totally not following through on what you'd have to do to make that work. Yeah. We've sort of spent a lot of time sort of talking about stuff we're not super keen on. Did you have a favorite part of the film or a favorite number in the show? Yeah, I again, like there are actually a lot of really good numbers in this. This is one of the things I liked about this movie is that there's some solid singing and dancing in it. 100%. Which you can't say about some of the other movies we've watched in this series. <laughs> Two that I really liked are, I think it's one of the early ones, might be the first sort of monologue number, um, mm-hmm. is I Can Do That. Said, I can do that. I can do that. Yep. Right? Yeah, yeah. Which is, like, simple. It's straightforward. It's not very emotional, but it's got the energy of Make Them Laugh from Singing in the Rain. Totally. Where totally it's just, it it's this guy just trying to get everyone jazzed and doing all of these different dance moves and, and being funny, and it's just solid entertainment. I really like that one, and I also really like Surprise, Surprise, which is... As you said, it's like it's a new number that's written for the movie. And I think it actually totally works. And it benefits, obviously, from having this amazing dancer at the middle of it. Um, But I think that the song itself is also really good. Right. It's it's funny. It's insightful. It's entertaining. um, And the dancing and and the filmmaking around the dancing is amazing, too. One of the things that I, I totally remember from that number is just watching Richie, the dancer, doing a spin and just watching the sweat fly off of his yeah. head. And oh my God. it's like, that's filmmaking, right? Because that's yeah. something that you wouldn't necessarily be able to see on stage unless you were right there yeah, in the exactly. front row. Totally. Yeah, that number is like, it's the showstopper. It's ironically, like it's not, not being the showstopper from the theatrical production, but like, it's so good. Yeah. Um, what about you? What, what were your favorite numbers? So, uh, surprise, surprise is definitely, like, my favorite moment, probably, in the film. On top of that, I just loved every sort of ensemble number. I loved the opening, and then when they're doing the rehearsal for one, there's some really interesting filmmaking choices, including, like, some weird, like, Nazi imagery stuff, where, like, it gets really discordant and, like, kind of disturbing. And then, obviously, the actual finale of the film where you see the number sort of come to shape on stage of the show. I just think all of the stuff with the full ensemble works so well. Again, the, like you said, you know, the film does not lack talent. The performers are all at the top of their game. And I do think that like, there's some really great cinematography, some really great editing. We're not in that like MTV era where we're constantly like cut, 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 cut. Like it yeah. lets the dance numbers actually play out. I don't necessarily love the orchestrations across the board because, like, they've really 80s them up. Like, if you were to listen to the Broadway cast recording, Nate, I think you would be very surprised because, like, this thing is littered with, like, electronic drums and synths and all that stuff, and that is not how this show traditionally would sound. But I also recognize that it's, like, it's 1985. you got to appeal to, like, contemporary audiences. But the thing that bums me out, though, is that probably my favorite song from the show which we'll talk about 
is so neutered in this version. Mm. My favorite number in the show is this song, What I Did for Love. And we can talk a little bit about why in a little bit, but they make a change here and they basically, they give it to Cassie. And again, we sort of said that she's not the strongest member of the cast. So that was just such a bummer because it's like, in the context of the show, that number is so powerful. Whereas in the context here, it's just kind of like thrown away and it's kind of wasted. So that's a bit of a bummer, but... Yeah, all of those chorus numbers are just phenomenal. Yeah. No, I love one as well, and and both versions of it are so interesting and both so cinematic in the movie. Like, again, Mm -hmm. that's when the movie's really making use of the medium and not just filming a stage show. But this is is something I want to talk about, though, right? Yeah, okay, let's dig into that. So, yeah, because, you know, some of the critics were sort of like, yeah, he just kind of points a camera at the stage, and it's just, you know, the stage show. I don't know if I totally agree with that. I don't think it always works, but I think that there is actually some interesting filmmaking going on. And particularly, like you were saying, the way that some of the musical numbers are shot is actually really quite good for the era, you know, because it's almost going back to that older style where it's very straightforward showing these people actually do the, the moves and showing how impressive it is that they're able to do that. And so, like, I really appreciate the um, restraint that he's using in editing. And I think that there's some interesting stuff going on. Like I said, the beginning and the end are the best parts, where in the beginning, (laughs) you have this intercutting, not knowing the show and not knowing where it's going. I'm really excited about this taxi cab. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) Moving through New York and wondering who's coming and why are we seeing these things intercut? There's some really cool stuff going on in that scene, too, where the musical numbers are are kind of going over top of the scenes when you're still watching the cab. Like, some stuff like that, I think, really works well. And then at the end, all of the cinematography and editing around the rehearsal, for one in particular, is really fantastic. Like you were saying, it's very creepy. um, And they start to kind of look distorted and desperate. And it's kind of happening while... Cassie and Zach are having this conversation where he's saying, you know, look at them. Do you really want to be one of them? Like, you don't belong there. You're not a member of the chorus and all this kind of stuff. And I think that that stuff is very interesting. The stuff that really doesn't work is the flashbacks, (laughs) which just suck. Uh, They're they're so bad. Yeah, feel really shoehorned in and kind of pointless. And, And then the other thing I feel like overall is that the musical numbers... They do some interesting things about kind of abstracting the film when you're coming in and out of these musical numbers. Like I mentioned before, the number about the ballet, right? At the ballet, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the ballet. And that number is kind of nice because they do this cool thing where they fade out all of the other actors on the stage and it's just honing in on the one person. Right. Um, But they don't really do anything beyond that. And I think that's kind of the thing that I, I... feel like is missing a little bit is a little bit more of a flight of fancy with some of these numbers where you could go a little bigger a little more theatrical actually in the way you're presenting them instead of just sticking so closely to reality like acting as though they're still just standing on stage you know not to bring it back to all that jazz but like <laughs> right it's inevitable <laughs> it, but that's what he does at the end of the film when he's dying yeah. and he has these moments where like he has like a Busby Berkeley number and he goes completely over the top and, right. and says like, this isn't reality. 
you know, because, and we know it's not reality because people don't break out into a song like this. Like, so you're right. Like it's almost being too safe. Yeah. And again, I'm of the opinion that the show was never really going to work as a film because of just the nature of what this show is. Mm -hmm. I think he does kind of the best that he can, but I do think like, what would the Bob Fosse version of this show? But See, that's the thing is that like, you say that it's inevitable that you couldn't possibly do it, but I, then I'm like, I want to see the Bob Fosse version of this because like I, so I rewatched the opening because I was sort of like, I love the, the beginning of that movie of all that jazz so much. And the thing that strikes me about that is that like that opening, he's already intercutting, you know, this process of them auditioning with him having a fantasy conversation with the embodiment of death (laughs) and, and then him also walking a tightrope. Right. And so it's just like all of this imagery that he's introducing right off the bat. Right. (laughs) And that's, you know, making you already think in this montage kind of way. Right. Which is what film is so good at. And that's, what's totally missing from this is there's no effort to create symbolism in, the movie. in fairness, though, we are also comparing it to arguably one of the greatest movies ever made. 100%. So, like, it's maybe not, maybe not the fair, but no, you're right. And you know what's really interesting, though, because you keep saying this montage. So, they talk about this in the documentary. Marvin Hamlish sits down for one of the early rehearsals and real, and like the first person steps out of the line and starts delivering his monologue and steps back. And then the second person steps out of the line and steps back. And he says, You could see the audience going down the line and go, we got 18 more of these things right. to go. Like, what are we going to do? And so he had this idea or Michael Benner, whoever had the idea. And it's literally listed in the script in the like, it, it, I believe even on like the cast album montage. And he had the idea of let's take a bunch of these stories and start t- intertwining them and telling them together. And so in a weird way, the stage show starts doing this very sort of filmic technique of like interweaving and interconnecting these stories mm-hmm. that then the film doesn't bother. Undoes. It's just, like, it's just, so it's this weird thing of like the stage show is more cinematic than the film adaptation. Like how did that happen? Yeah, that's funny. It does remind me a bit of Laramie project, which you and I were both mm-hmm. in together, which, you know, it's a, was a similar sort of process, but you know, based on these oral histories and they yep. do a lot of that montage as well, as I recall, of sort of intertwining the different stories in interesting ways. Yeah, actors literally transitioning to different characters within the same scene. Right. Even. And it, and it does, it's so important to draw these connections that are non-linear, because there is a bit of that in the movie. Like, again, in the ballet, they have these three different characters talking about their experiences, but... They're all very similar experiences in a lot of ways, and they don't necessarily make you draw these sort of lateral connections that make you wonder, like, hey, why is he walking a tightrope, right? Or whatever, that make your brain kind of go, like, what's going on here? It doesn't make you want to be analytical, I guess, which is, I I feel like, kind of what you need to do to make these fantasy musical sequences work on film. So I'm curious, then... What do you think of Bennett's original, more meta pitch of the film should have been the audition process for the film adaptation of the stage show? Do you think that would have worked? Is that like way too out there? Or is that what this show maybe needed in order for it to 
be adapted to the screen. I, you know, I think that that sounds like a really fun premise. I don't think it's too out there. I don't know if that's what's wrong with this movie exactly, mm. but I think I totally think that that could have worked, right? With the right people behind it, there's nothing wrong with that premise. Um, right. I do think that there's a version of this musical that does work on film. I just think that it has to be done with such a light touch um, and and with so much thought about how you translate these things. But yeah, I kind of like the idea. What about you? Uh, Yeah, I I honestly, I hadn't read that until today. And I was like, I don't necessarily know for sure that it would have worked, but it, we've talked about this a bunch, adaptation versus translation. Yeah. I think this was the kind of thing that, the idea of a chorus line being a show about Broadway actors struggling to make it on Broadway. When you make it a film, you have to find some way to keep that theme, but adapt it for this new medium, adapt it for this new form. It shouldn't be about Broadway people trying to make it on Broadway. It's almost like it should be about, you couldn't just be like, okay, well now it's, People trying to make it get into film because like then it's a complete like, you know, page one rewrite. Yeah. But like there needed to be something there to sort of bring these two worlds together better Mm -hmm. so that it isn't just he's setting the camera up and letting the stage show unfold, which like, again, I'm of the opinion that more Broadway shows should just like hire professional recording versions of the stage show and let that be your film version. Like it doesn't need to be a quote-unquote film, like, I like, and in more cases prefer, filmed stage productions to their film adaptation because, again, it's just, it's a totally different medium and it it doesn't necessarily always work. So, yeah, yeah, I'm very intrigued by that idea. The other thing I read recently was that Ryan Murphy, the guy who did, like, American Horror Story and then has subsequently started directing and adapting a bunch of musicals for Netflix, Mm -hmm. he apparently has a Netflix deal. And one of the things that the article I found was from 2019. So nothing has happened since then, but he wanted to adapt a chorus line into a mini series to which I was like, Oh my God, like what each character is going to get its own episode. Like then we're back to the Marvin Hamlish, like, Oh my God, we're going to be here all night. But apparently he wanted it to sort of be about the making of a chorus line sort of in the Fosse. Ver- I don't know if you saw Fosse ver- yeah, sort of that Fosse same ver- idea of like mm-hmm. it's the stage show, but then it's also the making of the stage sure. show sort of happening concurrently. That could be really cool, which is also kind of an interesting idea. That Honestly, like, that might be the best adaptation of this is telling the story yeah. of how it got made, but then showing it actually being performed as part of exactly. that. Exactly. Um, yeah. Because at the end of the day, like this is kind of an oral history project. It's kind of like yeah. trying to really understand the lives of these people who went through this and bring those to the forefront instead of letting them be in the background. Totally. The one other thing I want to talk about, because I've made reference to it, and I think it sort of, <laughs> in many ways, summarizes everything that doesn't work for me, mm-hmm. is my favorite number in the show. It's a song called What I Did for Love. Kiss today goodbye. The sweetness and the sorrow. We've been saying how this the show is like theater with a capital T. It's a series of monologues. It's about the process of being in a Broadway show and what it takes to be in a Broadway show. You know, the sacrifices, the passion, the drive. And this song sort of perfectly summarizes it. And 
the way it functions in the show is they're rehearsing. I believe they're rehearsing the number one. Yep. And one of the dancers, Paul, falls and twists his ankle or whatever and has to be rushed to the hospital. And it's implied that, like, basically, this might be it for him. He may now be done. Right. Like, he will he will probably never dance again. And Zach asks, you know, the rest of them, like, if today were the day that you had to stop dancing, how would you feel? Would it be worth it? And one of the characters starts singing this song. And it's essentially the entire thesis of the show of, like, you know, this is what I did. Yes, it was worth it. It's been hard along the way, but I can't forget, won't regret what I did for love. Right. Won't forget, can't regret what I It's the thesis of the show. It, you know, it's got beautiful harmonies. It starts with one person, and then the whole cast starts singing it. It's it's beautiful. It's emotional. It's powerful. It's great. In the film, on the other hand, it happens before Paul injures himself, right after Cassie and Zach get in a fight, and it becomes a solo for Cassie. Right. Kiss today goodbye. And it, it perfectly summarizes everything that's wrong with the film and, like, what it doesn't understand of what this thing is supposed to be about. And that the film thinks it's about this relationship between a person who couldn't make it and is just taking this gig to survive and her, you know, brilliant director while leaving, like, the ensemble sort of, like, in the background to deal with, like, whatever they're dealing with. When really, it's supposed to be about them. Like, it's yeah. about all of them, yeah. not these two people. Right. Those two people just happen to be a part of this bigger thing. Right. And meanwhile, Zach injuring himself is kind of just a footnote. Or yeah. not Zach, like just, uh, Paul injuring himself, yeah. Paul injuring himself, yeah. It's just a footnote. And it's kind of a weird moment in the movie for someone who hasn't seen the musical. Because they don't... They kind of make a big deal of it, out of it, but there's definitely no subtext of like he may never dance again. You know, no. that that's kind of not there, which is too well. Bad. And 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 again, I think this is sort of the main criticism. You never get the feeling in the film that these people are dancing, performing, singing for their lives. Like that's supposed to be the whole message here. Like we're not quite at the AIDS epidemic. So like the literal dancing and singing for their lives element isn't there yet necessarily. But yeah, that's what the show is supposed to be about. It's like these people who just, they need this job to survive. Right. It's a job. The f- I think that's like yeah. the key thing is that it's like, this is a living for people and they're trying to get the next gig and put food on the table. Yeah. And, and the film doesn't have those stakes because it's too busy invested trying to make this like romantic love affair between two of the characters their yeah. their central driving dramatic force i mean it's like just, the movie it's there in the movie and when the movie's at its best it's leaning into that original premise that's yes, the thing absolutely. and then it just takes these missteps that totally undermine the most important moments of the show which is yeah, really too totally. bad because there's some good stuff in there Uh, so let's pivot to one of our favorite segments, the parts that seem like Simpsons jokes but aren't. 
Nate, was there anything in this film that felt particularly Simpsons-y to you? <laughs> yeah, so there wasn't a lot for me, but there was one moment that stuck out. It's a really small moment, but it's like, you know, in the heat of the sort of uh, audition process at the very beginning, and they're sort of bringing new people on stage, and one guy comes on and he's chewing gum, and uh, Larry says, you with the gum, spit that out. And the guy spits it out into his hand, and he can't figure out what to do, so he panics and he puts it in his ear. <laughs> yeah. And then just keeps dancing. And then keeps dancing, which I yeah. thought was was pretty funny and had it felt like a kind of a background Simpsons thing that might happen. Totally. Where you might just see a quick clip of someone doing something like that, a, a Springfieldian. What about you? Yeah. Did anything else stand out for you? No, I mean, this isn't a particularly, like, humorous show. I mean, there is, so, Different arguably, kind of yeah, well, it's funny because, so, there's the two characters in the show that are married, right? Right. Uh, Al and, I think her name's Christine? Yep. So, the punchline in the show is that Christine can't sing. Right. That's her whole thing. They purposely have the actress sing flat and they have a number called sing. And it's like, but I, all I couldn't do was, and then Al comes in and says sing. And it's like this back and forth. And like, it's, it's a very funny number. But I really couldn't. Sing, I could never really. Sing, what I couldn't do was. Sing. And they got it from the film. It's like, you know, maybe not a, the wrong choice. I don't know that it necessarily would have worked on screen. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, the actress playing Christine in the film is Nicole Fossey, Bob Fossey, and Gwen Verdon's daughter. Oh, <laughs> super yeah. weird. So, yeah, the descendants of Broadway royalty are literally in this. But, yeah, I, I, and then I guess we should talk about, like, the one jokey, humorous number in the show, Dance 10 Looks 3. Right. Which, I, you know, had a bit of a Simpsons sort of vibe, maybe, to it. Yeah, Just because maybe. it's so cheeky. Very, very cheeky. The story behind that was, um, so this is the song that Val sings, you know, about tits and ass. Tits and ass, bought myself a fancy pair, tightened up the derriere, did the nose with it all the gold. And again, famously in these workshops, in the early stagings of the show, the number wasn't working. And Marvin Hamlish kept saying, like, this is the best thing I've ever written. Why are people not laughing? Like, I don't understand. This is hilarious. Why is it not landing? Mm-hmm. And so they, he says, you know, we decided to, like, take a step back and look at the show as the audience would look at it. And so he grabs the program and he opens it up and he starts going through it. And he says, there's the problem. Because in the program, the title of the song was Tits and Ass. And he says, we're giving away our punchline. Ah. And he said, the next night they changed the program, changed it to Dance 10 Looks 3. He said, as soon as that line hit, the audience lost their shit. And he said, I've never heard an audience laugh so hard. And it's just one of those, like, fun little stories of, like, yeah, you know, making a... Nothing's made in a vacuum. Like, you have to figure it out. And Right. But I do like the idea. Dance 10 looks three, you know, is kind of a very cheeky sort of Simpson-y kind of... Yeah. Kind of gag. And it's it's great because it is it is playing on your expectations, right? Of, totally. You know, because this is a, a, a show that has a lot of sincerity in it, right? And that number that you were talking about. What I did for love? What I did for love. Like, that number is so sincere and so much about, like, why we go through this sort of grueling stuff, what keeps us in the game. And Dance 10 looks three, you you know, when someone's talking about, like, what really made their life work for them and how did they, you know, change their career and stuff, you expect it to be them digging into their souls and finding the strength or, or being true to themselves 
And this this number is all about getting plastic surgery to enhance your tits and ass. And so yeah, it's exactly. just like it just totally turns it up on its head. And I, I think it's a reverence, at least in spirit, reminds me a bit of The Simpsons. Well, and it does the thing that we've talked about. In order for those moments of ultimate emotion to work, you need to like bring the audience back down and like totally. lighten the mood. And so you have numbers like that or the one that you loved. Uh, I can do that. That's just sort of, you know, they're lighter. They're a bit frothier and they're a bit more fun so that you can then ramp up to the big show stopping gut punches that are to come. So. So, Nate, let's wrap this up. What do you think? What's your verdict? What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? Did it work for you? Did it not work for you? I'm curious, as someone who had no baggage here and is coming to this totally clean, you know, what did you think? Yeah, so the thing that's weird about this movie, having now watched a bunch of other movie musicals recently, is that in some ways, the singing and dancing in this movie is the best that we've seen. Quite arguably, I would agree and, that this, yeah, th- it, from that standpoint, this has been the strongest. Right. I mean, like maybe rivaling it is on the town, and it's kind of in terms of its sort of philosophy of how to shoot these numbers. It's actually mm-hmm. got a fair amount, I think, in common with on the town. It's very old school in that way, but with an athleticism and a sort of mix of different types of dance that isn't in on the town. It's, you know, for sure. Very impressive. Like from just a sheer physical standpoint, how talented these people are. And so like, that's the thing that I appreciate most about this movie. We've already said it, but the thing that just doesn't work for me is this reframing around the love story. It's super hollow. And because of that, all of the parts that don't really matter in the movie are great. And the parts that (laughs) matter most suck. (laughs) And so it's a really hard movie to evaluate from that standpoint. But overall, you could probably watch clips of this, like watch the numbers in isolation, and they're really worth watching. But seeing the whole movie maybe isn't necessary, you know? So I don't think I would recommend it, uh, watching it front to back. What about you? Yeah, you know, I went into this with great interest but trepidation because I had heard nothing but terrible things about it. And so... On my first viewing, I kind of was like, that was pretty good. Like, I don't really understand what people are yeah. like so up in arms about. Like, what? Like, it's not terrible. Like, I've seen far, like, compared to Paint Your Wagon, this is in Hamlet. Like, <laughs> I, so, but then rewatching it last night, I guess a bit of the sheen had worn off, like, and the cracks sh- showed through a bit more. I 100% agree with you that the, production value and the choreography and the talent on display is very impressive and it's worth seeing for that like i said the first 20 minutes and the last 15 20 minutes are incredible it's just everything else in between where it's maybe not as strong and doesn't work so well for me i tried really hard when watching it not to be in the headspace of just comparing it to the stage show and being like ah, the stage show did it better yeah and I, I, in all honesty, I wasn't really doing that. Like, there were a couple moments, and I, I noticed it a lot more on that second viewing, how what I did for Love really doesn't work relative to how it works in the stage show. I think both times, the thing that really stood out for me was, like, that Paul monologue, which, as I said, is such a gut punch in the theater, is 
so like forgettable in the film. Yeah. And one of the criticisms I was reading is that like the film kind of sanitizes a lot of that sort of more adult, for lack of a better term. Like the stage show addresses homosexuality and homosexuality within the theater much more openly. But like the film adaptation kind of waters it down to make it more family friendly for a 1985 audience. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, they have characters who address the fact that they're gay, but like, you know, it's like, well, I knew it was gay, but then they don't like dig into it. Whereas like the stage show does. And so like, maybe that's just, again, the nature of the era of when this is coming out. But yeah, it's not a memorable film for me. And uh, there are plenty of others I would watch over this, but I liked it way more than I was anticipating. And I think across the board, like with so many of these, that was always sort of the thing. Like these movies that I went in with great trepidation and being like, oh, I, I'm not looking forward to this. With the exception of Paint Your Wagon, I came out really like pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. If you don't like musicals, this is not going to convert you to being a musical lover. Whereas there are maybe other films I would show someone to try and get them more into it. But if you're someone who likes musicals and hadn't seen it before, then I definitely would say like, it's at least worth checking out. Like you will find value in it. Yeah. I I would say if you haven't seen the stage show, then I might actually recommend watching it because if you really like musicals, you might actually be like, Oh, that was pretty cool. And there was some really impressive stuff in it. And then when you Mm -hmm. do see the stage show, you'll be like, Oh, this is so much better (laughs) from what I gather. Um, So, So yeah, you know, I don't think that there's anything super off-putting about this as a watching experience. It's just that it doesn't really, like, live up to its potential. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Like, it's it's perfectly fine. Yeah. It's not great, but it's not terrible. It's just, it's it's fine. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Uh, well, to that end, let's let's maybe give some options for people who loved this or liked this and want more of that or maybe they didn't love this and want something better than this like what would be your extra credit selection here i mean we've been talking about it this whole time but all that jazz i mean obviously (laughs) yeah i think you know it's a different movie it's not exactly a musical there are musical numbers in it but it's not constant singing and dancing. It's not people breaking out into song because they just are too full of emotion. It's kind of more <laughs> these fantasy sequences that play out. Yeah. Uh, but it is a movie that's all about Broadway and all about the sort of behind the scenes, the controversy, the personal toll, all of this. The big difference is that it's from the director's point of view, basically. A director who in, is essentially writing his own autobiography as it's happening and, and it, quite literally predicts his own death. Yes. Yeah. Bold move. And unfortunately, he was pretty accurate. But yeah, um, but yeah I, I think it's, a, it's an incredible movie. And even though it's from the director's perspective, I think it does a good job of showing the toll that his actions take on the folks who are doing the dancing and doing the the acting and the singing. It is a warts and all kind of story. It doesn't do the thing of like, oh, I'm so great. I'm the director and I have no flaws. I'm the hero of this narrative. It recognizes that its hero is a piece of shit and the effect that has on the people around him. Totally. Which is kind of a rare thing for movies like that to to do yeah Um, and so yeah it's one of my like favorite movies of all time i think it's one of yours as well it's an incredible film in its own right in terms of just the movie making and just super pertinent to all of the same kinds of topics that this movie is trying to tackle totally absolutely what about you could not agree more uh yeah i mean well i i've referenced it a bunch of times uh 
every little step. If you didn't love this, but you see the nuggets of something here that you're intrigued by, definitely check it out. If you did like this, then 100% you need to check it out because it's, I did sort of like a Sparks note of like what this two hour documentary did I tried to do in like 15 minutes. Um, it's, and it interviews like members of the original cast and the creative team. It is a fascinating insight into the history of the show but like i said what makes it even more interesting is that you have this very very rare glimpse into the making of a show as it's happening in a way that you could never really do otherwise because no one's going to spend money to do a documentary about the making of a show that they don't know is going to be successful yet right you can only do that because it's a revival of the most successful broadway show up until that point Mm -hmm. so um yeah you just you get a really really interesting perspective and you get to see by talking to the people who are auditioning to be in the show about people auditioning to be in a show, you get to see just how true to life the show really is because a bunch of the people auditioning straight up say like, if I don't get this job, I won't eat to, like next week. Like yeah. I, I, I'm out of money. I'm out of my health care. I, I need this to survive. It just, it really resonates and it takes all of the things that this is talking about and makes them that much more real. And then uh, also, we, we talked about it a little bit, Fosse Verdon, the FX TV series. Again, it's more all that jazz if you like that, but it's just sort of this behind-the-scenes look of the creation of theater. That's something I would highly recommend. And then this is a movie I haven't seen myself, but has been on my list for a long time. And I actually rented it as a kid, and then my dad wouldn't let me watch it because apparently <laughs> there's, for whatever age, I was probably like 10 or 11, it was not appropriate. Uh, but Fame? Oh, yeah. Do you, you remember the movie Fame? I, yeah, I think I remember seeing the TV series Fame. Yeah, there was a TV series with Janet Jackson, of <laughs> yeah, all people. Yeah. Uh, but Fame is based on this very, it's an actual real performing arts school in New York City. Mm-hmm. And it's about these kids who go to the School of Performing Arts, and it's about their lives being you know again young performers and uh it's got some kick-ass disco songs but yeah it's a similar type of story but is much more highly regarded and then was remade like 15 years ago in a terrible remake that nobody should see but (laughs) the original is is supposed to be very very cool add it to the watch list okay well that brings us not only to the end of this episode but to the end of this season uh which is kind of hard to believe yeah it's been a long journey but uh we've seen some really cool movies along the way and stuff that i would never have necessarily sought out myself because it's not usually my cup of tea but i'm glad i've seen a lot of these yeah i'm glad to have well maybe with the exception of paint your wagon i'm glad to have finally (laughs) seen all of these things that we have been seeing referenced for over a decade now nate i'm so glad that you pitched this to me I had such a blast and I hope you at home had a blast as well. Now that we've wrapped up this mini series, we're actually, we're going to go on a brief hiatus while I uh, attend to a little film festival that uh, I happen to work for. So we're going to be a little bit busy, Uh, but we will be back in late September. We're going to start a brand new series. We're done with musicals. So for those of you who found it a bit of a slog to go through all of these musicals, uh, which I know that you exist because you've, uh, you've reached out to me told me um don't worry we're gonna be back to switching it up every week we're gonna have new stuff we're gonna have some more guests it's gonna be great so i really hope that you uh you know you join us when we uh when we do return in late september thank you again for listening to this episode of springfield googleplex the movie podcast for simpsons fans brought to you by thatshelf.com 
If you enjoyed what you heard, please uh, leave us a review. Share this episode with the Simpson fans and film buffs in your life. Like and subscribe, all that jazz. Eh? See what I did there? Eh? <laughs> Very nice. Pretty good. Pretty good, yeah. And uh, you know what's not pretty nice? What I'm about to say next, because ladies and gentlemen, until next time. We'll see you around the Plex. We'll see you around the Plex. That's the wrong, uh, that's that's New York, New York. Uh, <laughs> that's not even a musical. <laughs> no, it is now. Oh. It is. Oh, okay. It opened on Broadway. Right, yeah. uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. No, uh, what I should have said is one. Singular sensation. <laughs> Every little step she takes. One. Woo! Thrilling. Con- we didn't talk about this, but um, when Morgan was in that production of A Chorus Line, I because I hadn't seen a chorus line at that point and had only seen the Simpson episode. Every time she would head off to rehearsal, I would sing one chorus line of people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>